Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and we come to you now asking to hear from you something that will be meaningful for our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, as we come with open hearts and open minds, that you would speak to us today. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So Christianity has an image problem. The perception of Christianity in the minds of people who are not part of our faith is not what we want it to be. The message of the gospel is a message of love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and hope and peace and compassion, but much of the time, those are not the things that we are known for. A few years ago, a couple of Christian researchers thought that they were seeing this problem. They were like, man, it seems like people don't have uh, a good impression of Christianity, and so they did a big uh, research project. They did a whole lot of interviews, several hundred interviews, um, focusing especially on the younger generation of outsiders to see what they thought uh, about Christianity and Christians. And they published a couple of books um, out, of the, out of that research. The first one was this one right here, which is called Unchristian. And this is a summary of their findings. And they called it Unchristian because what they found was that the impression and the image of Christianity that was uh, very widespread, especially among young people, um, was not a very Christian image. It was, in fact, a very unchristian image. And, uh, and so many of the things that outsiders believed about Christians were not at all the things that characterize what Jesus taught us in the Bible. In fact, uh, most of the people they interviewed actually had a positive impression of Jesus, and they had a positive opinion about Him, but they didn't think that we as Christians represented Him very well. Now, they did find there were some positive associations when they were asked whether certain phrases uh, were true about uh, Christianity. A large majority said that we have good values and principles and that we are friendly. And a small majority even said that Christianity is a faith that they have respect for and that we consistently show love for other people. But the statements that drew the largest agreement were that Christianity is hypocritical and anti-homosexual. And by anti-homosexual, they, they, they talk a lot about that one in the book. They don't mean that we disapprove of homosexual behavior. Outsiders think that we hate homosexual people and that we are bigoted and disdainful of them. They also think that we're too political and that we are judgmental. And then in a kind of a summary question, people who were familiar with the term evangelical Christian were asked whether they had a bad, neutral, or good impression of evangelical Christians. And the result was a pretty even split, actually, between bad and neutral. Um, but only 3% said they have a positive impression of evangelical Christians. 
And if you want to know more about that study and you want to learn about uh, you know, all kinds of details about what, exactly what people said. They've published some of the interviews they did and, and lots of different things. But you can pick up uh, one of these books, UnChristian. It's available all over the place. You can find it on Amazon or wherever. Um, but you don't really need to read all that to understand the basic premise that we started with, right? Christianity has an image problem. We are not perceived in the way that we want to be perceived, and among a large portion of our population, we are thought of in mostly negative terms. And in our passage today from Romans chapter 2, we're going to see that that is not a new situation. And the, our passage in Romans is going to talk a bit about why people had a negative opinion in those days. So Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 17 says, Now you... If you call yourself a Jew, and if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior, because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth." So Paul is, uh, is talking especially to the Jewish people here because they were the ones at this time who had the Bible, what he calls here the law, right? And, and they were the ones who they really did have the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the Scriptures. And because they knew the Bible, they really did approve what is superior. And they... Uh, they, they they really were qualified to be guides and instructors and teachers. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That sounds pretty good. And in our current situation, we Christians are pretty much in that position. We have the Word of God, we have the Bible, and the Bible is a, uh, a guide for us so that we can know the truth, and we can know about God's ways and how God wants us to live. And the Bible teaches us the truth about right and wrong, and we have the knowledge to be a light to those who are in the dark. That's great, but our passage does not end right there. It keeps going here in verse 21. It says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name was being dragged through the dirt by the outsiders. Many people in those days did not have a positive image of God. And we don't have an extensive scientific survey where they did all kinds of interviews and all the kind of data to look at and stuff, but we have the plain statement of the Scripture that um, in in 
the Roman Empire of that time that Gentiles or outsiders were blaspheming the name of God. So our problem is not a new one. It wasn't new when Paul wrote Romans either. In fact, uh, that verse where it says God's name is being blasphemed is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. He wrote that hundreds of years before Paul cited it here in Romans. Now, a lot of Christians, we hear that outsiders have mostly negative impressions of Christianity, and partly because we know that that's the way it's been back in Romans' time, back in Isaiah's time, and all these other times, and not terribly concerned. Um, the thinking is we shouldn't really even care what outsiders think. We are here to please God, not to please people, right? And trying to please people actually leads to unfaithfulness to God. And so who cares what they think? And not only that, but Jesus taught that the world would hate his followers just as it hated him. We see that in, uh, in John chapter 15, on the night when Jesus was arrested, he gave his, his disciples a bunch of teaching right before the end. And in John chapter 15, starting with verse 18, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So, yes, we know from the Bible that we must seek to please God and not people, and that we should expect the same kind of opposition that Jesus himself experienced. But doesn't it sound to you, when we read in Romans where it says, God's name is blasphemed because of you. Doesn't it seem like the implication is, is not something like, and that's just what you would expect, and that's not a problem, because that's just what, the way it is. You guys aren't doing anything wrong. Is that what it sounds like? No, this is a condemnation of the people who know God's will and teach God's will, but are not doing God's will. And obviously, God does not want his name to be blasphemed. So, yeah, we can expect opposition from the ungodly, but clearly that is not the inevitable or the desirable situation. Um, in many circumstances, outsiders have very positive impressions of Christianity and the church. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, um, just a few weeks after Jesus had told his disciples to expect opposition, this was just like a couple of months later, um, they are living in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, and the Bible says that the church was, quote, enjoying the favor of all the people. And while the Bible certainly teaches that we should not live to please people, we are also told many times that we should care what outsiders think. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus put it like this. This is Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, what Jesus wants us to do here is to make our reputation to be the exact opposite of what's described there in Romans. Right? Instead of outsiders looking at the people of God and blaspheming God's name as a result, they should look at our good deeds and they should praise God. They should glorify God because of us. In the epistle of uh, 1 Peter, um, Peter uh, heard Jesus teach this in the Sermon on the Mount, and he kind of more or less repeats what Jesus had to say in a, in a, in a bit of a different way. Uh, in, the, in the days of Peter, when he was writing this, he's writing to a bunch of Christians who are living in a culture in which a very small number of people have become Christians at this point. Almost everyone in their society were still worshiping idols and going to the temples and, uh, and were living on a very different value system than what the Christians were living on. And so Peter is giving them instructions about how to live in this kind of a society. And so he says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Same thing from the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's, it's uh, uh, our lives should be so good that people see our good deeds. Outsiders see what we're doing and they glorify God. And then a little later in, uh, in 1 Peter, he's discussing this topic again, and he says in chapter 3, verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So here um, is the biggest reason to be concerned about how we are perceived by outsiders, right? Look at this passage. We need to be ready to give an answer to people's questions. That means we should be thinking through what we're going to say to explain to people about our faith. But the answer and, and being ready to give a good explanation and explain about God, that's only one-third of what's being required here in this passage, right? Um, we need to have a solid presentation of the, church, of the truth, but the next part, the next third, is our delivery of that. Because even if we have a really good, solid, clear presentation, if we don't deliver it with... Uh, gentleness and respect, it will not be heard. Another word for gentleness and respect is tact, right? Christians need to be tactful as they present the truth to people. Otherwise, when we try to be a light to those in darkness, the light just shines right in their eyes and blinds them and they're worse off than they were before. And then the last third of the equation here is keeping a clear conscience. In other words, it's your, it's your good behavior. If we do not practice what we preach, then our truthful answer and our tactical delivery are not going to be of much use. We really need all three of these things. 
We need to have a good answer. We need to be able to explain to people. We need to be able to tell them the truth. But we also need to have that gentle and respectful delivery. And we need to have uh, a lifestyle that backs up our words. The big issue that's, that's highlighted here in our passage from Romans um, is one of the same issues that the outsiders in the, in the young Christian survey identified in today's Christians, and that is hypocrisy. God's people had the Bible, and they knew God's standards, but they did not live up to the things that they taught. They proclaimed that sin was sin. They taught the truth about right and wrong, but they were guilty of the same things that they condemned. Now, one of the things that some people have looked at this passage and they think, you know, maybe what the problem with religious people here is that they're relying on the Bible to tell them what is right and wrong, and maybe their faith in the Bible is a little too over the top, right? Um, Maybe part of the problem is that they believe a little too strongly what the Bible is saying. So maybe the solution is for us to be a little more flexible and to recognize that the Bible is not always a good and reliable guide to correct behavior. Is that a good solution to the problem? No. No, that's not, that's not the issue here, right? Um, it, it's not the wisdom of Scripture that's in question. The Bible is correctly described here in the passage as, as uh, a way for us to know His will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law. Uh, and the Bible is also described as the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So the fault is not in the Bible, right? Uh, it is, the Bible is an inerrant guide to, uh, to tell us the truth, including the truth about right and wrong. And in Romans, it also doesn't really question whether or not the, the Jews that he's talking about here have an accurate understanding of the the Bible. Um, It's not that they failed to read their Bibles. Those who know the Bible really are qualified to be a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Right? The problem is not our insufficient knowledge of the truth. Now, a big part of the solution to this problem is what we, what we were just talking about, those three keys, uh, know the truth, deliver it with uh, gentleness and respect, and have a good lifestyle. And another uh, a, a part, of, a way to summarize a lot of that stuff is the word humility. Gentleness and respect are a description of humility. You can really hear the need for humility in this passage in Romans in the way that Paul piles up all these superlative descriptions of the people. Um, you know, as you, as you read the, about how they're teachers and guides and they're the light and they're the, uh, all this stuff, it, it, it sounds pretty arrogant, doesn't it? Um, and I'm pretty sure that Paul meant it to sound that way. Even though it's true. Right? It's true that they are qualified and they do know the truth, but 
It sounds pretty arrogant when you, when you boast about your knowledge like this. So even though we really do have the answers in God's Word, we need to teach God's ways with gentleness and respect and humility. And there's at least a couple of reasons why humility is needed in these situations. Um, first of all, while we are confident that what the Bible teaches about right and wrong is correct, and, and that it is a completely reliable guide to sin and righteousness and all those things, we should not be 100% confident all the time that our understanding of the Bible is correct. It is possible for us to misunderstand what the Bible teaches. Um, an example of this kind of thing happening in the, in the days of legal slavery in the United States, many Christians genuinely believed that the Bible supported the practice of slavery. Um, now, I'm sure that there were some who knew that it didn't really, but they deliberately were twisting the Scripture to try to support what they wanted it to believe. But I'm also sure that there were some who really were wrong about what they thought the Bible taught. They thought that what they were doing was okay with God. And there's no doubt been many other smaller examples throughout history of people who thought that the Bible taught that something was allowed or something was not allowed, and they were mistaken about what they understood the Bible to teach. So it is possible that we could be wrong about what we think the Bible teaches, and so we need to have some humility. But while we say that, um, it's also true that there are many things in the Bible that are perfectly clear and that there's no doubt what the Bible says. Um, and so we can be confident and speak with confidence on those topics. Um, but occasionally, it is good for us to be, to be humble. When we, when we want to speak on a particular topic, we just need to make sure that we know because there is a solution if you're not sure what the Bible really says, the solution is do some study. <laughs> Read your Bible. Get into it and find out what the Bible really says. And most of the time, uh, you will clear up those questions and you won't have any question what the Bible says. But occasionally, there are things where the Bible doesn't speak all that clearly and we think we know, but we should have some humility about those topics. The other... Um, reason why we need to have humility when we speak to people is the thing that's being talked about mainly in our passage here, which is that none of us really live up to what we're saying. Um, there really is no avoiding some extent of teaching what is right while not doing what is right. Right? Um, Christians are still sinful people. We fail to do what we know to be right all too often. And especially when we look at Christians broadly uh, and, and Christianity, we see high-profile failure all around us, right? You know, prominent pastors caught in affairs or embezzling money from their ministries or famous Bible teachers exposed as being abusive bullies or denominations that cover up scandals in their leadership. There's all kinds of bad stuff out there. And 
Each one of us knows our own failures and our own weaknesses and how we have not lived up to what we know to be true. So be humble. Be humble. Yeah, we know the truth. We know the truth. And yes, we approve what is superior because we have the wisdom of God in the Bible. But that doesn't mean we have to be jerks about it. If outsiders hate Christians because we are hypocritical and judgmental and abrasive, we cannot use the excuse, well, Jesus told us to expect opposition. Here in Romans, it's the sinfulness of those who proclaim the truth without obeying it that is the cause of God's name being blasphemed. And really, even though Jesus said, they're going to hate you like they hated me, Jesus was immensely popular, <laughs> even right up to the end. Do you remember when they arrested him before the crucifixion? They did it at night. Why? Because they were afraid of the crowds that all thought that Jesus was great and loved his teaching and loved Jesus and loved his good works, and so they had to sneak around to arrest him because they were afraid of the majority. So yeah, we can expect opposition and enmity, just like Jesus experienced opposition and enmity, but Jesus was not hated because he was a jerk about his knowledge of God and his will. Some people will hate us because we stand for the truth, especially when the truth is counter to the popular beliefs in our society. But when we present the truth, we need to make sure that, what we are, that we are doing it with humility and that we are not adding additional uh, offense. And so we need to remember the three keys. We need to stand for what is actually true according to the Bible. And we need to present the truth with gentleness and respect. And we need to do our best to practice what we preach. And if we do those three things with humility, we can cause outsiders to glorify God because of His people rather than blaspheming His name. So that's the end of what I have to say about Romans for today, but I have something else I want to say before I finish today. The last time I was here was two weeks ago. Um, speaking about Romans chapter 2, and the topic that day was what happens to us after we die? And I showed from the Bible that death is not the end of us. After we have died, we will continue to live. We talked about how we will all stand before God and give an account of ourselves and either be sent away for punishment or give an eternal reward in heaven with God. Now, what I didn't know when I brought that message is that my own father died two days later. But my dad was without question 
a man of faith. He trusted Jesus to be the payment for his sin so that he was certain that he would pass the judgment on Jesus' merit and go to eternal rewards. And I know that I will see him again when we all get to heaven. And I just want to tell you that you too can know what will happen to you after you die. Because your death will not be the end of you. After you die, you will stand before God and you can know that you will find favor with God if you put your faith in Jesus. So even though I'm greatly saddened by the loss of my dad. But at the same time, I do not mourn like those who have no hope. For I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand before him after I die. And when he has declared me righteous, I will join my Father in eternity. Thank you.